Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm excited to be back hosting the podcast. It feels like I have not hosted in a really long time, but for those of you who have missed me, you're in luck. I'm going to be here two weeks in a row, and for those of you who are saying, well, eh, no big deal, Beth or another host, well, you're stuck with me for two weeks in a row. A couple of really quick things because we have a packed show today. Don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts. It makes it easier for others to find us. That's pretty much it. We would love it. We'd love your five-star review if you could give it to us. Today, we're going to be talking about pathways to two careers that we talk to students about quite a bit. One is actually architecture, and the other is teaching. And we certainly need more teachers in the world, and I'm sure we need plenty of architects. So we've got some information on how you can achieve both of those goals Um, But before we get to that, we're going to be talking about financial independence for teenagers. Always top of mind for me as someone with a 19-year-old at home, well, not at home, but at college and sometimes at home. Um, And joining me for that is Chrissy Foran, who is a former financial aid officer at both Gonzaga and Washington State Universities. Hi, Chrissy. Good morning. Well, all right. It's morning for you, middle of the day for That's me. <laughs> yeah, and also it's 80 degrees for you and yes. 42 degrees for me. So I'm, I'm glad I'm you today, Beth. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little jealous. You should be. You <laughs> all right. So I think a common conversation that parents have with other parents, with each other, questions we get related to this is just, you know, teenagers not necessarily understanding how hard you have to work to earn the money to pay for things. And so, um, you know, a question that will come up is, how do we teach them the value of a dollar? And I would love to hear any thoughts you have on achieving that goal, because certainly the better we are able to prepare our students for that piece of things, the better able they're going to be to support themselves, which is certainly my goal as a parent. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is this day and age, you know, I don't have teenagers, which I'm, I'm thankful for at this point based on how people pay for things. But I get this all the time on phone calls. We talk with families and parents that they don't understand how their, you know, their kids don't, they don't appreciate the money that's being spent. They don't know how much money is being spent. I mean, there are phone, we're using our phones, we're using apps, we're buying things online. I mean, we're having clothes and dinner and anything you can think of delivered to your door, literally within the just a click of a button on your phone. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to understand that teens don't really understand the value of a dollar at this point. Um, one of the things, and this might sound a little weird, but one of the things you can really do to kind of quickly talk to your kids about or teach them about um, the value of a dollar is to start using cash. So, you know, I know teens all have phones, but don't let them pay for things with an app. Don't let them buy things on Amazon or, you know, order dinner through those delivery apps. Just forget the apps for a bit, even just a few months. If you're giving them allowance, give them a cash allowance. Um, Or if they have a part-time job, have them cash their paychecks. Have them deal in cash for a little bit when they're purchasing food or gifts or gas, if they're going out with friends. Once they're on it, so once they're out of cash, so basically this is how much cash they get for the month or the week, whatever you do with them. Once they're out of that cash, they're not able to buy anymore until they get the next round of cash. Mm-hmm. So you have to have those discussions with them on, you know, what what are you going to use this to buy? How many, if you're going to save something, if you're, if you're trying to buy something, you want to save up for it. Well, how many of weeks of allowance is it going to take for you to save that up? Kind of help them decide what their priorities are but do it on a cash basis for a while so that they get the idea of, oh my gosh, so this really does cost this much. Um, I can't just click a button and I don't really know how much it's costing or what account it's coming out of from my parents or that sort of thing. So I think cash can really wake them up and, and know that it's their hard earned money that they're spending. Um, another thing you can do if, if you're comfortable, some parents aren't, but if you're comfortable sharing your finances with your kids, you can really sit down with them and show them your monthly bills show them what your mortgage is, show them how much your electricity bill is, that cell phone bill that the family's using, Um, and then show them the money you have coming in, saying, you know, this is how much we have, this is how much we pay out each month. If you have a budget, if if you're on a spending plan, if you guys are saving as a family for trips, or 
you know, buying a house or buying your teenager a, a car, you know, show them the plan of how much you're putting away each month, how long that's going to take you to save up. I mean, it can help them understand that how you as a family work so hard to pay for your family's life. Um, and a lot of parents aren't comfortable with that. So I think that that other cash option works really well. It just, you know, making them work for things rather than just saying, here's, you know, $5 here, here's $20 here. Well, here's your allowance for the week. And once you spend that, you don't get any more until you get the next allowance. So it really kind of teaches them to think about what they want, you know, how soon they can get it. And if they're dead, they don't have anything left to buy. So um, I think those two options can work really well, just kind of helping them understand that. Yeah. And I'm, I would just put a plug in to families if you're thinking you're not comfortable. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons why families aren't comfortable. Yeah. Maybe you should get more comfortable with it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because talking about money, it it is there's such a stigma around it and mm -hmm. how many times, and you certainly have these conversations much more frequently than I do, Chrissy, but how many times do we have students getting into college? And it's at that point when the student is in their, into their dream school, not something I love, like the whole concept <laughs> right. of, and now the parent is saying to us, we can't, I can't afford this, but yeah. I can't tell my teenager that because they don't know that I can't afford it. And I mean, that is to me a little mind blowing. You, you need to be, maybe you don't need to let them in on every facet of your financial right. picture, but you can certainly let them know here's what's reasonable. But I think the other problem is that a lot of times parents aren't thinking about what's reasonable, what they can afford before right. the kid goes through the process. Anyway, not our topic for today. We've certainly covered this <laughs> in the past. <laughs> so I'm not going to get us completely off of um, off topic. Teaching teens to budget, you mentioned you know, if parents have a budget. And actually, when you were talking about going in cash, I was reading an article um, earlier this week about a woman who is um, kind of uh, in a financial, she's, I don't think she's claiming to be an expert. What she is, she's on um, social media talking about how she went from being in debt and living paycheck to paycheck to, um, you know, making money actually doing this advice. And one of the things that she did was she had the envelope system, which is something yeah. actually that my parents used for a little while anyway, when I was younger, which is speaks directly to your cash piece, um, you know, where you have a budget and you put in the cash for each idea, uh, each element of the budget, it each has a separate envelope and you work exclusively from those envelopes. Um, that could work if you're using the cash thing with your kid. Any other advice for helping teenagers to budget, create a budget, that kind of thing? Yeah, and the cash, the, the envelope thing is a really great thing because, again, it's very visual. It's very physical. Kids have their hands on the cash. You have one for, you know, savings. I'm saving up for a video game or a used car. I'm saving up for college. You have one for your own kind of immediate, what do I need to buy this week? I want some new jeans or something. And then you have some if they actually do have cell phone bills that they pay or, you know, gas that they have to pay. Um, so the, cad, the, the, un, the envelope cash part works really well for budgeting. But, you know, parents need to remember that nobody is really teaching their kids about financing and budgeting. There's a lot of schools still that are not teaching any of this in high school. So it really is up to the families to have these conversations as hard as they can be. Um, but again, in terms of teaching teens how to budget, whether, again, if they get an allowance from you, if they have a part-time job, it's just really important to teach them how to use that money wisely. And I do, I talk to a lot of kids on the phone, you know, with their parents that say, yeah, I get $50 a week or I get $20 a week. And I say, well, what are you using that for? I don't know, you know, just kind of whatever. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of good to kind of bring them in and say, okay, what ex do you have expenses? Am I going to make my child pay for their school clothes? Am I going to make them pay for entertainment that they're going out with their friends? You know, are they paying for gas if they're able to drive? So if they have expenses, figure out how much do they have, sit down with them and you can do a spreadsheet if that works. If the envelope method sounds not fun or, or you know, something they wouldn't get into, there's tons of apps that are free that you can use for budgeting, keeping track of your money. But you really want to talk about what do you want to save for? Are there things in the future that you want to save for, if, whether it's in the next month, whether it's in the next five years, whether it's, you know, I want to buy a car in five years, I want to help pay for my own college. So what are the things in the future they want to purchase? What are the things that they need to pay for immediately? And then just, you know, that kind of that fun money. So, I mean, it is good to take a little percentage of that just for yourself, just for fun, not for saving for something big, but hey, I just am going to go out to dinner with my buddies. Um, so getting your child used to the idea of 
putting some aside for saving. Um, maybe you are somebody that donates to charity, you know, and you want to start your child on that. Have an envelope for, you know, putting a little bit, even a couple of dollars away for charity. Um, so that can be a really big step towards getting a more financially secure future. Um, so teaching them how to track what they're spending, maybe just have them just for the first month or two, just track what they do spend. So before you get them on a spending plan, just say, I want you to write down everything you've spent your money on or go back through if they have a bank account, what did you spend it on? And then kind of have that conversation from there of, are these things that you want? Are these things that you need? So teaching the difference between needs and wants is huge, even in the adult world of budgeting. And, and, you know, do I really need this? Is this a necessity or is this something I want? And do I have to have it? Can I live without it? Is this better for me to put that money towards my larger goal? So I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can, and different apps you can do to teach um, budgeting and that sort of thing, but it's whatever you're comfortable with. So, you know, there's Apple Pay, teens can't, well, they can't really use PayPal and Venmo at this point, but there's a lot of different ways you can track kind of what they're spending and kind of have a little bit of control over that. And in terms of um, establishing credit, you know, how important is that? Um, for teenagers? Because you talked about, you know, saving money to buy a car or, you know, saving money for something longer term. And I'm thinking, will they save enough so that they could just buy that car outright? Should they buy it with cash? Should they finance it? How important is it to start establishing that path? Yeah, I mean, most people will tell you that anytime you can save up for something and pay for it in full without having to borrow for it is a really good thing. So you're not mm-hmm. paying interest on, on the thing that you're trying to buy, like a, a used car or you know, loans, things like that. But the, 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 the main thing is that credit really is an essential part of an adult life. There are people that live without credit. They never borrow. They pay for everything in cash. I don't know that that's the norm. That's great if you can do that. But the thing is, is once your child grows up, when they get ready to rent an apartment, whether they're in college, whether they're just graduating, or if they buy a car, if they're going to take out a mortgage, they're going to get their own cell phone bills. They have to have a credit history. I mean, employers check credit now for getting jobs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with a good credit history, they can get better interest rates. They can maybe get more better jobs. They have more favorable terms. It can save them thousands over thousands of dollars over their lifetime. So um, I think it's important to start the process of establishing credit. Um, So as a parent of a high school or if you have a college student, you know, you want to make sure they understand the value of having good credit first. Of You know, these are the things that it's not just, you know, I want to buy a house or a car they're checking credit for cell phones or checking credit for, for jobs, like I said. So it's important that you establish credit, but that you also teach them how to use that wisely and not max out a credit card and then go, oh, I just you know went to Target and, and Nordstrom and now I don't have any money left on my credit card. So right. teaching the value of credit, I think is important for later in life, kind of starting to build that credit, telling them how to use it wisely, making sure they're checking their, at least right now, check your credit score once a year. Make sure no one else is using your credit. You know, cybersecurity right. is a huge thing. Identity theft is a huge thing. So even if you're a parent going, no, I'm not getting my child a credit card. I'm not doing that right now. That's great. That's your choice. But have them log into a credit reporting agency at least once a year and just check their credit, make sure no one else has stolen it. So any it, any any other ways to establish credit? I'm sorry, I'm talking over you. Um, beyond just getting a credit card, or you could get a credit card with a really low limit, correct? That you, mm-hmm. your student could get used to, or your child could get used to paying off on a monthly basis. But any other ways to establish credit as a teenager than beyond just having a credit card? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that you, you know, before they start getting into the credit card to make sure that you're opening like a checking account for your child or your teen in the first place, practice a spending plan, making sure they have a fixed amount each month that they understand they have to live within that amount so that they're budgeting. You can do a prepaid credit card that can help with that since that does have a set limit that they can't go over. So before you actually get an actual credit card, maybe practice with some of those kinds of things that doesn't, they don't affect credit, you know, to begin with, but it teaches them. Um, once you know that they're responsible and they've kind of proven that, there's a couple of options. You can add them as an authorized user on your own credit card. Um, so that way you can monitor what they use, what they spend it on, how, how often they're using it, how much money you're letting them spend. So if, especially if your child's still in high school, that's a really ideal option because it can help them establish a credit history while they're living with you. Mm-hmm. And then you have a little more control over what they're doing with it and how they're spending it. Um, another option, you can open a joint secured credit card. Um, so because secured credit cards, 
they have an initial deposit that kind of serves as a credit limit. Um, again, you're kind of limiting the credit available on the card for them and helping them prevent overspending. So, you know, it, you have to really check into it, talk with your lender to see, you know, kind of what some options are. But, um, you know, student loans, sometimes you can borrow, you know, when, when they get into the point of getting into college, they can borrow student loans. And even though that's not a credit-based loan, it does help with credit in the end when they're paying them back. Got it. So there are a couple of different things, but it's important to make sure they can handle it before you sign them up for anything. Yep. I love that. It's great advice. And as someone who misused a credit card when she was in college that she got <laughs> so <did> day <laughs> one. Right on I campus, like, they just give them out. <laughs> they do. Yes. I like the idea of kind of a little bit more of an on-ramp for it. Um, yeah. So. Start a little slowly. Exactly. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate this. I think really some really helpful insight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're doing, we're going to be talking about pathways to architecture. So don't go away. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I promised we were going to talk about pathways to architecture, and we're going to do that. And I'm excited because today I have the wonderful husband and wife team of Scott Whitebone and Kira Tyler. Kira, as you know, because you guys have seen her before, is my colleague here at College Coach. She's also a former admissions officer at Brandeis, and her husband, Scott, is an architect. So, yay, it's the perfect combo. Welcome, (laughs) you two. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Kira, we're going to start with you, because what I want to start with is... um, the kinds of things students can and should be thinking about in high school um, yeah. to prepare for applying to college to be uh, to study architecture. So any specific coursework they should be thinking about, activities that they should be doing or interests sure. that they should be developing? Yes. Yeah. So we do want students to cover like the standard kind of five cores, right? English, math, history, science, a language. I would say that if there's room for electives, it makes sense to probably put an art in there, or if there's some sort of architect intro to architecture or even CAD, my husband can elaborate more on that if he wants, but that any of those kind of classes would be great. Even like a project lead the way, which is sort of prep for engineering could be helpful, I think, um, but definitely like gotta take physics, I would say. And if you can get to calculus, that would be really, really helpful. Um, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, like, do you use calculus? Like, I don't think you use it as a practical skill, but I do believe that it's great preparation to be able to handle, um, some of the workload that comes a little bit later from an activity perspective, particularly if you believe that you may be applying to programs that have 
um, a, pro a portfolio, you should have some decent drawing skills. Um, so, or it could be painting, could be even photography. Um, if you've been in an activity or a course that allows you to put together like a model, you could take some pictures of that. But I think we do need to see sort of that other kind of artistic side um, as well. So um, I find that those things are, are super duper helpful. Got anything you would add on to what Kira's saying? Yeah, I agree. I agree with what she said. I think having uh, taking electives that would sort of uh, that will allow you to have a, a portfolio created. Uh, so art classes, photography, as as Kara mentioned, I think are really helpful. Um, and I think sort of catering your experience to the school, the type of school you want to go to, um, is really helpful. So understanding where you want to go. If you're you know you're going to Sci Arc is very different than going to Wentworth, which is where I went to school. And so if you understand the type of program you want to get into, then you can start to steer yourself towards the electives or activities that make sense for getting into that program. Got it. All right. Well, then actually, it's a perfect segue into my question for you, Kira, which is how do you decide um, what kind of architecture program you want to apply to and what are the options? Because I think for many people, they're not even aware that there are options. Yeah. So the first big thing is that to become a licensed architect with um, perhaps may come up a little bit later in more detail what that means. But if you want to work as an architect in the field, you need to have a Bachelor of Architecture or you need to have down the road a Master's of Architecture. You have to have some sort of professional degree within that. Um, and so a BARC is five years. So number one, you have to be looking at schools that only have the BARC. Um, if that's what you want to do coming out of college, not every school has that. Very few actually have that. So that's the number one. That's the biggest driver, I would say. Um, and that's going to be, it's akin to, I was a music major in college. This is a little bit more labor intensive than if you were just going even for business or um, art history or something, because you not only need to make sure that the major is there, but then um, to Scott's point, sort of about figuring out what kind of program, you have to do the research about the school. Are they really into sustainability? Are they really into um, big industrial uh, design? Are they really like, what, what is sort of their sweet spot around their education? And so I would say like, absolutely lean into online tours. If you can get on campus and see the workspace, I think that's really interesting. See what's around, see what kind of projects are posted, see where kids are getting internships. Um, that'll give you a good sense, I think, of where kids are going after. But this isn't something that I think is um, just to be Googled and sort of done. Like you need to actually get in the spaces and try to understand what the curriculum entails. I will also say um, it is five years. It usually involves a study abroad as part of that as well, plus co-ops. So this is a very different educational experience than you know most people will be taking on. And Kira, one last question. And then Scott, I'd love to find out more about your specific pathway to architecture. But what if you are, um, you're the parent of a student or a student who's saying, architecture is kind of seems cool. It sounds interesting, but they are nowhere near the point of kind of putting in all of that um, time and work right now, or it's too late. They haven't put that time and work in, and now they're going to be applying for it. And, or now they're applying to college right now there, it's only May of their junior year, theoretically. But if you're listening to this and you're already a senior later on, um, are there options for those students who kind of want to explore architecture, but aren't ready for a five-year BRH program? For sure. I would say like architectural history, which is available at some schools, that's going to be a four-year program. I think that's good. That's a good start. You could do art history. I think that's interesting. You could do a type of engineering like civil would be great. Um, so those are other things that you can put in your toolbox. And I would utilize summer probably to get internships at an architecture firm, even better if it's a full firm that also maybe has architecture, interior design, and also engineering. So you can see how all of those things play together. Because maybe you decide, I'm cool with my civil engineering degree. I don't want to get an, an MARC, right? So 
there are definitely ways that you can sort of supplement that. And then if your plan, if you're like, I'm still all in, I still really love it. And I'm sitting here with this BA in art history, then you'll want to go ahead and, and look at uh, masters of architecture programs, which will then allow you to get the proper credentials to, to work as an architect. Awesome. Very helpful. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. So Scott, can you tell us a little bit more about your education and professional background? Kind of how, basically, how did you become or come to this point in your career where you're now working as an architect? Sure. Um, so I, I went to uh, Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston. Um, it's, as Kara mentioned, it's a five-year, it's a Bachelor of Architecture, five-year degree. Um, that was what I wanted to do because I didn't want to um, be forced into uh, getting a master's degree, um, and which is for me important because um, in order to uh, become a registered architect, you have to go to an accredited program. Um, so it's a professional degree, but it's just to add to what Kira said before, you, it actually has to be accredited. And sometimes accreditations go in and out. So it's always important to check um, before you go in that it actually is a program that uh, will allow you to become a registered architect in the future. Um, yeah, so I went to Wentworth, um, got a five-year degree. Um, I worked in Boston for several years uh, at a small firm, um, getting uh, deliberately sort of working in a small firm to get some, a lot of hands-on experience um, in commercial architecture. Uh, moved to New York, did interior design, corporate interiors for a period of time. Um, and now I'm in Chicago and worked at a few firms, uh, SOM and now HED, um, doing large-scale projects. And uh, yeah, that's sort of been my path. Um, my, my new role is a technical strategist. I, um, there's a lot of pathways, as Kara sort of alluded to, you can pick in the, the realm of architecture. Um, you could be much more design focused, uh, much more technical. I, over time, sort of lean towards more technical. So I have a new role as technical strategist and uh, essentially sort of uh, making, ensuring the, uh, the overall success uh, and, uh, uh, and mentorship of architects at our firm. Awesome. Well, I mean, it's always cool to hear that there, because when I think of architect, I think of someone basically sitting at a drafting table and creating things. And so it's always yeah. cool to hear the other roles that are involved in, in architecture. So that's cool to hear about your specific role. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, you know, what was the the BRH experience like? You know, what's it like to be um, being in an architecture studio? I, I, you know, for those students who are thinking, I think I might want to do this, it'd be great sure. for to give them that exposure. Um, it, it was challenging. I'll, to be honest, it was um, the first few years for me were a little more generalist. So we focused a lot on math, English, the sort of the core uh, experience. And there was... Um, about 200, 250 uh, architects in our, our sort of initial program. Um, at our third year, we were um, we all sort of applied to the uh, Bachelor's Architecture program, and about 40 to 50 people got in. So it was definitely whittled down. Um, and at that point, we went into a studio environment. Um, and so some of your classes were still in a traditional classroom environment, and that, but most of them were literally in a studio where you're learning about design, or you're working on drawings, you have a big desk, the, sort of what you picture when you think of architecture. Um, it, it was, you know, that, that was the, when, once we moved into our third year and moved into the studio, that was the first time I had really struggled with, um, getting A's sort of in a way. I mean, that was something I, I had to learn what it meant to be an architect. Yeah. Um, I had to learn what it meant to design. It's something that you don't really learn sort of intrinsically in high school, uh, necessarily, unless you sort of get that experience. What does, what good design means? You know, I, I had learned math. I had learned English. I knew how to draw really well, but translate that into in design for me took time to figure out. It was very re rewarding because by my fifth year, I eventually got good at and I sort of started to understand what it meant. Um, but their job in school is to sort of train you how to figure out what design really means, not just sort of saying a home is going to be four walls and a roof, but right. figuring out what that can actually be. Yeah, no, that, um, that makes sense. And actually, I, I was struck by something that you said, which is that you started with about 250 people and only like 30 or 40 or 40 or 50 made it. So was that, did you know that going in? And is that common for BRH programs that there is a whittling out process? Yeah, it, we, I did know that going in, um, that it was, we, there was be a, there would be a weeding out program. So we really had to, you had to focus on your grades. You had to have a certain uh, GPA to move forward, but you also had to have a good portfolio. So in a way it, there is, there's an objective and subjective part there. So if you didn't have a good portfolio, but you had really good grades, you were not going to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it was something you had to be thinking about as a freshman, like making sure that you were sort of staying on track because you knew by your third year, you'd have to make a decision. Do I go into a fourth year? Do I change schools? Do I stay in architecture? Um, right. What does this look like for me? And a lot of, you know, most of the students obviously moved into other fields and that's great. Um, some of them probably moved on to get master's afterwards uh, so they could be eventually become a registered architect. That's really, but uh, for me, um, getting the, the five-year degree sort of made sense, but it, what I would say very challenging and, uh, you know, I particularly sort of figuring out what it means and what design means. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. And, and um, something else I think to factor in and questions for students to ask when you're looking at a BRH program, am I, once I'm in, am I in or am I in? And then in two more years, I, I have to do something, uh, clear a couple more hurdles before I'm truly in. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, Beth, I yeah. Think, I'm sorry. I was going to say quickly that one thing for high schoolers and families to know is that it's not, you can't really transfer into an architecture program. Like you can't really get into a BARC because it kind of starts, as Scott said, mm -hmm. right from the start and right from right. the beginning of your tenure. And so it, it is tricky because it's like, I, I Scott and I had very similar uh, educational experiences where I didn't go to a conservatory, but I received a conservatory-like education. Same thing with him. And that's sort of what happens when you're being trained on a particular skill set, right? So um, that's just sort of something to keep in the back of your mind that I'm always like, if you think you want to do it, you should do it. Because yes. otherwise you're going to, if you come to it later, which is fine, you're going to have to back into it with a, with another degree. Right. That makes sense. All right. We are, um, we're down to our last couple of minutes, um, but I of course have lots more questions for you, <laughs> Scott. But um, I think a big question would be for me would be, um, you know, what if you find yourself and you're in this program, you're in a BRH program and, um, you decide you don't love it. Um, what are some, any, any thoughts on related things that students could do? Because it does seem like this is one of those things where if you don't love it, um, you yeah. probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree with that. There's a lot of sleepless nights that so you want to make it worth it. Um, yes. I, I think, uh, that's actually becoming very common. I mean, so I, I review a lot of resumes coming in and what I'm seeing uh, sort of a push towards is uh, getting a master's degree with sort of a um, associated degree. And that could be a lot of sustainability, environmental sciences, building sciences. That's become really big. Um, but I work with people with a degree in history. Um, you know, as long as they have an aptitude and they're getting their master's, which are, I think around three, possibly even four years now, depending on your previous degree, um, you know, you can still come into come into a firm and be successful. But I would say that right now what I'm seeing a lot of is sustainability um, because there's a lot of adjacencies um, and that's a big push in our industry right now. Got it. Okay, awesome. Um, last question I think that I would have for you is um, uh, around the process of becoming licensed. So that's, of course, a big step. You can graduate, get your degree and everything, yeah. but if you don't get licensed, you can't then work as an architect. So any insight into that process and how difficult or not that is depending on your experience. Sure. Um, when you, the, and I know we're running out of time, uh, essentially when you get out of school with a uh, accredited degree, you sign up to an organization called the NCARB, the National Council of uh, Registry, uh, Accredited Architects um, Board, and uh, you will um, you essentially get an internship um, or somewhere you will collect sort of hours uh, that you will track and uh, it, it factors in it to about three years. No one does it in three years because you have to get a variety of experiences. Um, and after that point, you take exams. Right now, uh, we, there's a new sort of format, but it's five exams. Um, each one is about four or five hours. Um, it, it is challenging, but the, the, the intent of the hours is to, is to prepare you to be a good, well-rounded architect and also to prepare you for those exams. Uh, when right. you do that, then you become registered. And you do become registered in one state. It's not a national uh, license. Mm -hmm. So if you get a license, for me, I'm licensed in Illinois and a few other states. Got it. Kind of like the bar then, right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. You're licensed to practice law in that state. So that's interesting. That's, the um, internship right. is paid. I don't want people to think that you're working oh, for free. The that's, internship that's right. is, it's, it's a job, but it, it so it's yeah. paid. Yeah. So yeah, the term I, is architectural intern, but you're right. It's, you get your on-the-job experience. Got it. So in some ways, it's not dissimilar from, let's say, going into medicine, right, where you do college and then you do medical school, although you can maybe skip that element if you do the BRH program. But then you're working and you're getting paid while you are becoming licensed. So that makes sense. 
I that's right. Thank and, you. and I would say very, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. Finish what you were going to say. Well, I was going to say very similarly, then at that point, you start to then figure out what your specialty is. Right. Yeah. So very similar in that perspective. Yeah. So thank you both so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. And this was super helpful, not only to me, because I didn't know a whole lot, but also I'm sure to all of our listeners with an interest in this. So I appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Beth. Absolutely. Um, All right, we're going to take another short break. And when we get back, we are talking about pathways to education. So don't go away. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. In our previous segment, we were talking about pathways to architecture. And in this segment, we're talking about pathways to teaching, which is close to my heart. Both of my parents are teachers. Um, So education... Super important. And joining me today are my colleagues, Brian Swan, who's a former admissions officer at Carleton College, Kara Courtois, who's a former admissions officer at Barnard College. Oh, and both of them are former teachers, which is exciting. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, All right. We've got a lot to get through and uh, the normal segment length, and therefore we need to start firing. So my first question, um, and Brian, I will toss this one to you, is any preparation that you think students can or should be doing while they're in high school if teaching is something that they're interested in? That's a great question. And I think for students who have an interest in teaching, you have to you know, get a realistic perspective of what teaching actually is. I think a lot of the time when you envision your career as a teacher, you're going to be thinking about, I'm changing a student's life and I'm I'm going to be the person that helps them you know, achieve their goals. But the reality mm-hmm. of teaching is you're working with a lot of different challenges uh, that, that students are bringing in the classroom and the setting of where you're going to work greatly impacts that. So Mm. what you do as an elementary teacher is going to be different than what you do as a high school teacher. What you do as a middle school teacher is going to be different than a a, a high school teacher. So getting some experience uh, is going to be important. Uh, Sometimes you'll find students who are able to uh, shadow teachers when they have a day off and maybe they're looking at other opportunities, but getting some experience, getting some actual exposure to what the teaching what teaching looks like is going to be crucial. Uh, I can't recommend that enough because I know when mm-hmm. I did my student teaching, that veneer of I'm going to change someone's life was still there, but but you, there's a good dose of reality that came with it too on mm. you know what I had to do to prep for all my different sections, what I had to do to you know get the class centered as they came in from the hallways mm. and, and so many more other sort of aspects. But I'll pause there. You you are you are changing lives. I think that at the core of it, you are. 
but I'm sure it is very difficult to maintain sight of that sometimes. Yeah. Um, like I say, as someone whose parents were both educators, uh, and I have had a, a couple of friends who started in teaching and quickly stopped teaching, but others who I know who started teaching and really love it. And, you know, so it's like anything, right? You you have mm-hmm. an interest in it and it may be the thing that you do forever and it may be the thing you do for a little bit. Um, and either way, you probably impacted both of you. I'm quite certain impacted students' lives and you may just not be aware of it. Um, so Kara, pathways to teaching. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talk about like, oh, I want to become a teacher. Well, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different pathways. Most traditional would be, I want to be an education major. So finding usually a university that has um, a college of education is pretty traditional. Um, I didn't go that route. And I know a lot of teachers who have not. And so uh, either because the school didn't have an education major, they never even thought of teaching. um, So did some sort of core subject as an undergrad and then maybe went on to a master's in teaching. Some colleges have a condensed master's um, program combined with an undergraduate. Where I worked at Barnard College, we had more of a certificate program. And so students would have a core major within our 40 majors. They would do shadowing and a variety of things, then take the tests to be certified in teaching. So they had a lot of classroom experience, some certain number of hours, but they were a traditional BA in a core academic subject with no education major um, tied to there. So those are some of the key ways. Um, and then the final would be the volunteer teaching programs, which is the route that I went, where um, I got a master's in of arts and teaching as part of a two-year volunteer commitment, kind of like Teach for America that some students um, do. I did the Alliance for Catholic Education, so we were in Catholic schools. But that can be fairly common. New York City Teaching Fellows is another one to give them a shout out. That's a good one. Right. So, yeah, those are the was, primary areas. Was that paid for then, Kara, by your volunteer work? Did that pay for your master's? Yes, it did. Ooh, <laughs> so, yeah, I and I think most of them are, quite honestly. So you don't always, like I didn't get a full salary. We just had more of a stipend. Mm-hmm. And But some of the programs, I think you get an actual starting teacher salary in conjunction. So those are really exciting pathways to consider. Awesome. So Brian, we just heard from Kara about her pathway. Um, Tell us a little bit about yours. Yeah, my my pathway was somewhat similar to the mention, uh, the the pathway that she mentioned about how Barnard, you know, operates. Mm -hmm. Uh, At Carleton, you, you major in a subject area uh, that's related to the field you want to teach. And so I knew I wanted to teach social studies. So I majored in sociology and anthropology. Um, and they had an option either kind of getting a, a minor in educational studies, but if you wanted to become a licensed teacher, uh, you could. You just had to do a few more additional classes, plus then your student teaching practicum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it was organized uh, was that you, you take your coursework, but then to do your student teaching, you actually did your student teaching after you graduated. So I finished my undergrad degree in sociology, anthropology, and then did my student teaching separately. Because when you're a student teaching, it is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're at that school every day from when the school starts to when it ends. And for you know some programs, yeah, they don't want you to feel like you're taking classes on top of your student teaching. And so that's how this was organized. You know, I, I would then meet with my uh, 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 you know, advisor, you know, occasionally, you know, throughout the, the student teaching period. Uh, but really the, the process was, you know, let me really immerse and give my attention to by developing my, my skills as a teacher, developing my craft, getting to know the students, getting to know how to uh, lesson plan, put that theory into practice. And, and that was a really valuable experience just to be mm. able to focus on that uh, while uh, realizing eventually that teaching wasn't the path that I was going to take. Yeah, I, 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 my, I finished my student teaching, then jumped right into higher ed. So got I got the great experience and you know, I ended up marrying a teacher, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like, like learning by doing, right? Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. And and there is there is value in that. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if the preparation, because you know, 
I mean, let's face it. This is a uh, an issue with everything that um, you go, you think you might want to do. And I mean, yeah. how many students do we know who go in with one intended major and then change it, or graduate <laughs> fully convinced that they want to work in X, maybe like as an engineer, and then mm-hmm. do that work and realize this is not at all what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I am curious if you feel that the skills you gained spending that time doing the student teaching um, and, and all of that work you put into a possible career as a teacher ended up, is it, are, are those things that you use today? Certainly. Uh, the valuable experience in, in trying to understand how to connect with people Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, the students you you're you're talking and teaching are people, and and those sort of soft skills that you get from seeing how students carry their thoughts and emotions into mm-hmm. the classroom is is applicable in all walks of life. Right. Understanding how to connect, understanding how to uh, problem solve, how to think on your feet. Those are all skills you gain from student teaching mm-hmm. that you're going to need no matter what sort of walk of life you're in. And so I. I definitely uh, am thankful I had that opportunity mm-hmm. uh, because it helped me understand that, yeah, I was interested in education, but I wanted to impact education in a different way as well. And yeah. so uh, certainly I, I'm glad that I had that experience and wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Absolutely. And yeah, Carrie, do you actually worked for a few years as a teacher? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I would be, I would love to get your take on what is that lifestyle like for a student who's you know, going to be graduating from college and going into teaching or is considering mm-hmm. doing those things. What was that life like? Yeah. I mean, I think it informs everything you do going forward, because I think most people would say their first year of teaching is the hardest year possibly sure. of their life, <laughs> you know, to be honest. Yes. Um, I've mentored a lot of first year teachers as well. I have some former babysitters that are first year teachers who reach out that first year, you know, um, for that support. And um So I think it informs everything. Number one, I think you will always remember some of those tougher moments when you have tougher moments later on. And it's like, yeah, that was nothing compared to what that was, (laughs) you know, (laughs) where this is. Um, I so appreciate, I discovered probably in like year five of teaching that I just loved one-on-one. And that's Mm -hmm. what luckily led me into a path where most of the work I do now is in one, one on three, you know, just much smaller um, connection than the 30 person high school classroom that wasn't my jam, you know, as much so, um, and all the grading (laughs) that went with that. So, um, yeah, so it informs so much, but I love what Brian said specifically. I think a lot of those just people skills is a big part. Yeah. So I, I think, too, what's interesting is you taught in high school. Brian, where did you do your student teaching? At what level was that? Seventh, eighth grade. Seventh and eighth grade. Right. So, whoo. Yeah. I don't know. That's like. I never would have done that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here's the here's the amazing thing. So my father was a teacher and mm-hmm. he taught middle school students and yeah. loved it. Well, yeah. he loved it it's for a most special of his calling. career. Yes. It is a special calling. There's yeah. something about. And, and I think that's one piece of advice. My mother. Uh, on the other hand, taught nursing at our local community college um, and trained basically all of the nurses in the hospital systems wow. in the surrounding area yeah. for years and years. You know, they everyone knew my mom. Um, and those are obviously also that's a different group of students. Mm-hmm. High school students are different from elementary school students, are different from kindergarten students. And Finding that age group that you want to teach is, mm-hmm. I would guess, yeah. as someone who's not a teacher, yeah. a pretty big component of being happy as a teacher. And so yeah. when I think about that, I wonder, too, if if when you're in high school, when you're in college, if you can get exposure to different age groups, that might also help you figure out what's your sweet spot. Um Later on um, this, uh, actually, I think this coming week uh, on the podcast, um, nope, it's going to be in a couple of months, sorry, had to quickly glance at the schedule. (laughs) We're going to be talking about um, students interested in early childhood education. Bright Horizons has this phenomenal program, the Horizons Degree Program, where you can go and get your undergraduate degree paid for by Bright Horizons while working in the early education field. Um, You know, so you can get exposure, you can get some exposure to that. But um, yeah, I mean, 
teaching, it's just so important. I can't think of anything that's mm-hmm. more important, yeah. um, you know, for kids and the three of us all have kids and we all, you know, know that how impactful teachers are going to be on them. And I guess I'm just curious if either of you have any other thoughts for students who are really trying to figure out, um, you know, is this the field for them and any yeah. encouragement that you could have for them in, in pursuing that, that field. Yeah. And maybe Brian, if you want to start off. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean to sound so uh, uh, Debbie Downer earlier. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, not but for I, everyone though, right? It but, isn't. But yeah, it's, it's a, to, to teach and to teach effectively, it's a mm. real big commitment. And, and, you know, I think everyone can remember the teachers who really made a student feel invested in and special versus the teachers who were just there and, and didn't really care about you. So I think if you're going to teach, you've got to really be willing to commit. Uh, I do love that, that advice that you gave Beth of just trying to find which age group is appropriate for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because yeah, I wouldn't have done well with the kindergartners. Uh, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to just say, you know, stop touching that or stop jumping around, right? But the middle school kids, I actually enjoyed. The, the seventh graders were hilarious. The eighth graders thought they were, you know, college students. That was all, so it was fun to kind of navigate their, their different sort of perspectives. But getting that experience, thinking about the age uh, and and uh, thinking about the teachers that influenced you, yes. um, I think is really important. Got it. Yeah. And reconnecting with them. Yeah. Just reconnect with some old teachers, you know, former teachers of yours as a student and just to ask them, you know, more about why they got into what they still love about it. It's not just about summers off. That's the main thing I wanted to say. It's a nice component, nice component, but there's a reason teachers get off in the summer. Yes, <laughs> it's a hard they job. They need it. They need it. Yeah. Kara and Brian, thank you both so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Beth. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Next week, I am back. I haven't been here for a while, but I'm back. And we're talking um, with a representative from the European University Commission. We're also going to be talking about the GI Bill and maximizing military benefits to pay for college. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget that we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.